for joining we are not our secrets i'm jj and today i have a special guest kimberly k scott kimberly k scott is an internationally acclaimed writer best known for her remarkable achievements in the field of business literature with her book topping the charts as the number one bestseller in amazon's women in business category Kimberly has solidified her position as an influential figure in the industry. Beyond her literary accomplishments, Kim is also a dedicated mother of two children, finding inspiration and motivation in her role as a parent. Her genuine passion for helping others shines through her work as an integrative health and wealth advisor. Kimberly specializes in assisting individuals and transforming their pain into power empowering them to overcome obstacles and achieve their fullest potential. As a firm believer in the power of personal identity, Kimberly guides creators, entrepreneurs, and coaches towards monetizing their unique essence by harnessing their authentic selves. She helps them unlock their potential for success and create impactful businesses. With an extensive background in journalism, Spanning two decades, Kimberly possesses a wealth of knowledge and expertise in the industry. Additionally, she boasts 15 years of experience in media, further cementing her understanding of effective communication strategies. Kimberly's coaching expertise spans over 10 years, during which she has guided countless individuals towards achieving their goals and realizing their dreams. Her innate ability to inspire and motivate others has made her a sought-after consultant for startups, providing invaluable advice and guidance to help them navigate the challenging path to success. Kimberly's core belief is that every individual has the power to transform their unique qualities into impactful contributions. She is driven by her unwavering commitment to helping others turn their individuality into a force for positive change, ultimately making a lasting impact on the world around them. What an excellent bio and what an excellent guest that I have today the privilege of having Kimberly. It is an honor to have Kimberly here with all of her experience. Thank you for joining me, Kimberly. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And it's equally an honor for me to be here on this side of uh, the talk as well as I've been listening to some of your other uh, shows. So I'm definitely excited and honored to get into today's. Thank you. It's good for you and other guests that have been on my show to understand the vision. And Mm -hmm. it really does help. It really does help people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the book that I had 
out the one that you talked about was called it was called breaking the stigma shattering the stigma sorry we we took it down we're putting it back up under um some other some other places as well but we kind of stuck to similar to what you're doing not the exact same thing but just this idea of not keeping things in and i love this idea of that you know secrets shouldn't have as much power over us as they do i love everything you're doing and i love that we connected on on an audio platform talking and speaking about things that had you know had power over us but were secrets and we no longer let that happen so i'm really thankful that uh, there's another place to talk about all of these things and you're doing a, a great job at giving us an example to follow thank you uh together we can i think prevent abuse mm. i have never seen anything to my knowledge that is on a preventive level we work mm. from it from a after the fact uh yeah. when people have uh and children too this affects everyone so when we have made mistakes then we get either chastised or instructed or as we grow older people grow older they get incarcerated and locked up whereas i think if we start foundations and stop the stigma surrounding this subject mm. that we could prevent abuse by simple dialogue and instruction and that's why it's so important for us to start these conversations i believe absolutely you know i i love that you said that because one of the things that i in my own personal story of abuse and assault and different things that i went through one of the things that I noticed and I've, I've seen play out was once I went through my ordeal, my first one was at 12, and then um, as an adult even, um, what happened when I spoke uh, to my parents after what happened with me happened, I noticed that my mother was also dealing with a past that she had dealt with, the same thing I had gone through. So in her mind, it never ever occurred to her to even say anything to her daughters other than, you know, don't go out and like sleep with people, like don't, don't have sex is what she said, like at a young age, like, hey, don't go out there and have sex. But what she didn't say was, these are the type of things that you need to look out for. Someone trying to groom you, um, putting you in bad situations, putting you around people that may not have your best interest um, at heart, putting you around people that are already abusers. So in my situation, the lack of communication between my mother and father and me did lead to where we were. Now, am I blaming them? No, but that ignorance, meaning lack of faith by definition, uh, lack of um, information by definition, the ignorance around this topic um, was something that my mom, she just grew up saying, we don't talk about that. People in families, we don't talk about that. We don't discuss that. So when people have it go on, they don't discuss it. And I'll close my loop here by saying, so that's why I have such a personalized connection to you with this. I love that you talked about the preventative side, because for me, if my mother or father would have had one conversation with the person that, you know, um, abused me, or if they would have had one conversation with me saying, these are the things that we don't allow. These are the things that you want to watch for. These are the things that we want you to know if it does happen to you, then I would have made sure that I at least told them or I would, I would have at least been able to speak up before something happened. Um, in my case, particularly, not everybody can do that. 
So yeah, that would have been a big piece for me if I would have had education and some dialogue and communication at the beginning, I would have maybe been able to prevent. We're not, we're not saying we can always prevent it. I, I think you and I both agree that we know we Absolutely. can't always prevent it, but yeah, in my case, there would have been um, definitely some easy, uh, you know, some easier ways to get around what happened to me. Um, and we'll go into some other parts later as how that also affected me as an adult, how miscommunication and not being willing to talk about these things led to me having this happen to me as an adult twice as well. Yes, simple dialogue instruction other than don't sleep around because if we could close that bridge, because it's actually a big, huge bridge mm -hmm. dividing the conversation. And if we could simplify it, because oftentimes, first of all, let me make this disclaimer. We aren't getting on parents where they came from a generation where this was even less addressed. What we're trying to do is just start on a go forward basis for today. So today, if we can give our children from toddler to teen what abuse looks like, because then if it does occur, we could at least stop it before it continues for long term yeah. Uh, it, abuse. So that's one thing. And then what I'm going to do is turn this over to you. If you don't mind, I would like for you to just give some experiences. I call them uh, ACEs now that I found out. Psychology, they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experience or event. Mm -hmm. And then just briefly allow us uh, to have a glimpse into your life. Thank you so much, JJ. This is such uh, an important part of my story and I know a lot of other people because it is something for me that started at a very young age, which we know is not rare. Most people, you know, they do assume child abuse in these areas as something that maybe happens as maybe, you know, toddler, preteen, teenager, but we know that it can go much younger. Um, I won't go fully into my story of the, the first uh, occasion because it's a, a family thing that's been dealt with and it's a very complicated scenario, but my first experience was at 18 months and that was an abuse involving a family member um, that was sort of accidental. It was due to circumstances around just, you know, their lives and who they were and what was going on and, and not knowing what was um their role and, and a lot of confusion. And so that um, was that ended up with me having a broken leg at the age of 18 months. So my first experience into the world was pain um, and, and not being able to stand on my own, having a body cast. So as you read in my bio, one of the things that I'm driven by is this idea of pain that we've all experienced, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever that may be, and turning that into purpose, power, um, you know, any of those types of things. So for me, uh, I really, I really do embody that. And I went on, I guess, another 10 years before something happened in my life. So I had a good 10 years without any abuse. And then at the age of 12 was my first sexual abuse and experience. For me, that was right at the age where you were coming into your own, you're hitting puberty. Those are those formative years. This is where you start to learn about your body. This is where you start to learn about um, the topic of sex. This is where you start to, you know, have to trust the people around you and um, as teens. And I was just broken. 
from the moment that I endured uh, sexual abuse at the hands of a family member. So for me, the secrets is twofold for me today, because one, it's a secret that I didn't quite tell everybody in my life for a long time. And so it led to a lot of issues in my interpersonal relationships. And then two, I kept it a secret from my parents and I didn't tell them for, for years. And the reason was, is because what we talked about earlier, where it's this issue that it's generational, you know, my, my mother had gone through it. People before her had gone through it. Um, my mother was married off to some older man at 15. My mother's mother was married off to a man at 14. My grandfather um, started having children immediately. So this was just something that was accepted in a lot of that culture. And I was in deep South Mississippi. Um, and I grew up there in Arkansas. So my experience occurred right into the 90s. So 80s to 90s. We were not talking about these things back then. Conversations were not being had. The first conversation on abuse that I ever saw after my abuse was on Oprah. I used to watch Oprah every day at 4 p.m. That was my time. I knew like I'd get out of school and watch Oprah. And she started having those conversations. That's when I started realizing, okay, I'm not alone. I haven't told my mom. I haven't told anyone. I'm not alone though. There are many people out there that are going through this, which is what I love about what you're doing here today. So for me, my first experience led to a couple of different things that would then impact me as an adult later and also in friendships and interpersonal relationships as well as marriages. So my first engagement with something sexual abuse was um, a family member. Um, by the time things happened with me, his wife also was in on this. So after the first occasion happened, the secrets started to just pile up. The person had already been able to come up with their idea of how to get out of it, how to make me feel like I would never have anybody believe me. And so in my case, the manipulation that we see happen a lot of times is what I had, the grooming, the gaslighting, the manipulation. And so in my case, um, I had the experience happen. Um, I didn't know whether to run, so I froze. And this would lead later to my inability to tell men no in work situations, in employment, in friendships, not just sexually, but like as actual interpersonal relationships, if they would ask me to go do something or work late, I couldn't say no. So that would impact me very, very much later in life as well. And so in this case, the, the experience happened. And then the next day, the, the wife, as we do see, and I would love to open up these conversations to this as well, that a lot of times this is a two-person situation. Sometimes the spouse of someone who's abusing people is involved as well. In my case, that's what ha that happened. So we, I looked at these two people like aunts and uncles. Um, they were a cousin of my father, but they're an aunt and uncle to me in my mind at this age. And the aunt, she comes to me and wakes me up the next morning and says, hey, hope you slept well, um, you know, insert name of abuser. Uh, he said that he had a bad dream last night and he thought that the house was on fire and he started sleepwalking and he, uh, in his dream, picked you up and carried you out of the house and you were fighting him. And so it was his way of explaining to her, if anything is said, this is what happened. I slept, walked and I did this and she fought me and this is what happened. So from that moment on, I thought, well, there you go. I can't argue against this lie that's going to be told. He's an adult. People are going to take him for, for, you know, more seriously than me. And then on the other side of it, 
I had another part of my brain that had heard my dad say, if anybody ever touches my girls, I will kill them. So there's this other part of the secret that goes on where I've got either, I don't know if they'll believe me, but then if they do believe me, I think my dad may go to jail for the rest of his life because he might kill this person. So as a 12 year old, that was a lot of pressure to carry. And that in itself would lead to resentment toward my parents that I, that I still never, I mean, I didn't even tell them at that time. I would have issues with my, my father, who's at my stepfather, but adopted me because it was his family member that would break the relationship between he and I through my teens. It would cause me to not trust my mother for sending me to a known child abuser's home, even though she didn't know to the extent of what he had already done to others, she still, you know, sent me there. Now I've worked all of this out with my family. They had nothing, you know, this was not anything that I'm going to hold against them. There's no shame there, but this did occur and it did have a lasting impact through middle school to the point that I almost was stunted in my ability to grow. And I was lagged maturity wise about a year or two. I sort of got stuck mentally and emotionally in that spot, that spot, as we know happens with trauma, as that's what I treat every day with what I coach. So a lot of people can get stuck. We see a lot of different ways people handle trauma and emotional and um, sexual abuse. They either you know, run away from it, they don't engage with anyone, or they become promiscuous. In my case, I ran away. I didn't date any boys. I didn't talk to any boys. I didn't engage anytime I was around anyone in my family. I didn't trust them. So the very people that I was there put on this earth to trust, I did not feel safe around. The places I felt the safest safest at were school and after school activities. So for me, I threw myself into academia and sports and dance and anything I could do to just stay away from people that I did not trust. And then to take that into my adulthood, not to go into the experiences, but to say, as a child, there was so much that I realized I felt so unworthy of being alive that I developed a phobia. The unworthiness from this experience, these experiences of abuse led me to feel so unworthy and so unworthy of love that I even believed I was unworthy of living. So I developed this phobia that every time something good would come into my life, every time I had something great happen, I would believe that I was going to die before it would occur. And even though my brain could see that I didn't die every time that happened, it would still happen every time. So the first occasion that I can remember was the summer, the the school year after my, my abuse occurred the first time, I was, um, I put in for the lottery to become a library assistant and I got my schedule for school for sixth grade and seventh grade. And when I opened it, it said that I'd been chosen as a library assistant and my brain immediately said, you're going to die. It won't matter anyway. You're going to die before you go to school. I could not understand why my brain said that. Now having years of therapy and understanding now it's because I did not believe that I was worthy. I did not believe that I could have anything good happen to me. That would continue to happen throughout my childhood, the rest of middle school, into high school. I didn't feel worthy of friends. I am also on the spectrum of autism, so that plays a whole nother role as people that are with learning disabilities, autism on the spectrum, dealing with things mentally um, as a child, that we process things differently. It, it makes us feel differently, um, not better or worse, just differently. So that's another topic as well. And then another level. And then when I went into high school, 
you know, I stayed away from boys. I did not want to talk to them. It led to rumors about me, you know, having maybe liking girls, which doesn't matter, don't care either way. But that was something that I, I was dealing with back in the 90s. And there's all these really crazy rumors that kept going around. And um, that was hard. And then every time, you know, anybody tried to get close to me, I would feel very unsafe, especially my guy friends. So I really was not able to live to the fullest extent. So when people say, should child abusers get life sentences? Well, my opinion is, we get life sentences. From the moment we are abused, we live with a life sentence from that moment on. We don't get cured, we get better, or we become manageable. But we don't ever live without the ramifications of what happened. So that's something that I've, I've always wondered, why people think abuse just is forgotten and that you know people have done their time. Well, we're living out life sentences every day. So I really believe in, that pain to purpose, pain to power mentality. I, I thought somewhere around 10th grade, I started journaling. That's what led to the journalism in my bio. That's what led to the books. That's what led to me speaking. I started journaling um, middle school to high school about all of my problems, pain. And at some point that writing, because I had started journaling, turned into really good writing. And I was asked to be in journalism in the 12th grade because they needed good writers. And so that changed the whole trajectory of my life. That led to scholarships, that led to um, writing uh, contests that I won. It led to the career that I would you know, have now and prior the last 20 years. So I really believed in taking that pain that I was going through and making sure that I was not going to allow my abuser to win. They would not continue to have power over me and that I was going to have a purpose and I was gonna put power behind that purpose. Fast forward to where I am now, I get to live that life every day, teaching others to do that, teaching others to overcome the things that they have endured due to their abuse. We work with it. We overcome those things as best we can, and we turn it into positives or things at least that they can harness and turn into really amazing things in their lives, jobs, relationships. And so for me, that pain into purpose is so important. And lastly, to land my plane, um, in case you had questions or anything else, is as I entered my adult phases of life, this affected my marriages. Um, this affected my ability to say no to a husband um, in a uh, sexual encounter. My first, that wasn't a sexual abuse encounter. I wasn't able to say no. And so he thought that it was consensual and I ended up marrying this person, having children with this person, because that inability to say no led me into that experience. And then that led me to thinking, well, if I've had sex with this person, I, then I marry them and so on. And then my second marriage, it caused a huge problem because a month before my second marriage to somebody that was quite famous in the music world, um, I was also assaulted due to a drugging at um, a professional event that I went to. And so that secret that I kept from that husband would lead to my inability to truly connect to him, stand up for myself when I was going through abuse from him. And it led me down a path of once again, being in that frozen state of not being able to say no, not being able to have boundaries with people around me, not being able to, to fully 
you know, launch from the nest of any professional endeavor. I did do a lot of great things during that time, but I would at times self-sabotage. So when something great would happen, I would feel unworthy as I did, you know, back in the, the early days. I, I carried that phobia of anytime something good's going to happen, I'm going to die. This would really cause me to live a prison in my mind every single day of my life where I had to wrestle between hoping that something good would happen and worrying that if it did, I was going to die. So this phobia was a crazy thing that kind of happened over the years and it grew into something that was sort of a monster that I lived with. So that connection of childhood abuse and people thinking that it ends there and people looking at childhood abuse and only looking at it through the eyes of what it must be to be a child with that abuse, they don't quite understand how that ripple effect affects us as the inner child as we are adults. The inner child is so broken, abused, torn apart that we are literally trying to survive. We're not even thriving sometimes. We're just trying to survive the world with that broken, abused inner child. And we cannot live at the highest version of ourselves until we are able to recognize it, heal those wounds, and speak about it. That very first step is allowing exactly what you're doing today. Someone like yourself who's gone through these things, creating a safe space for others like me to take that first step to speak, whether that be a podcast, a school counselor, a friend, someone that people feel comfortable with. That first step to speaking is the best way we're going to fight these secrets. That's the best way we're going to get step one, step two, step three. It's baby steps for a lot of us. And then those baby steps get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And the reason I use that analogy is because a lot of us are making these baby steps just like we got through the world. We baby stepped our way. We were abused as babies. I don't care if you were 16, you're still a baby. So you're moving through the world, baby stepping your way into, into that survival that we've all endured that was not pleasant. And on the other hand, the treatment and the management and the um, recovery is also done in baby steps. Just get through the day, get through the experience, get through the trauma re you know, response, whatever it is that you go through, baby step your way until those steps get bigger. Just like we got, we, you know, we grew into bigger kids, we grew into bigger adults, our strides got bigger, wider, faster. That's what I look at my recovery like. My recovery started out as baby steps. I had to tell my parents first at 18. Then I told a best friend. Then I told a husband. And then I started to sit in on groups. And then I started talking in bigger groups. And then fast forward to today where you and I met in a space where I was speaking in public on a public platform. And now I'm on a podcast with you. So I will just wrap there by saying, um, you know, I, I wouldn't wish any of this on anyone, but I have to have some gratitude in not the event itself, but in the recovery and the um, therapy that I've been able to do bringing me to my, to my true purpose and power from that pain. You know, uh, Kim, uh, my jaw has dropped and it doesn't drop often because I know the nature of my show, but it has dropped on this one, mainly because it started at 18 months and then 10 years later, which was 12 years old. My jaw dropped at the way that the two concealed 
and the lies that they can tell that would even have some adults questioning, right? Mm -hmm. So they use these, these expert lies. So mm -hmm. they're experts in this field. I had said this before, that they are experts in knowing how to push buttons and saying the right things to cover their abuse because the sleepwalking, who would ever think of something like that? And then for mm -hmm. her to go along with him is just an abomination to be covering for him. But we know this happens and that's why I have a podcast because I know when we were growing up, these things were happening. And I yeah. know that as I move through life, the children, teenagers, adults in this generation are still experiencing these same things. So it's not like we want to come out, bring up pain. What we want to do is, you said it best, we want to change pain into purpose. I love that, Kim. Thank you so much for that. You know, that's a big part. That's a big secret too. Like I said, the, the woman who's compliant with these men or reverse, you know, women are also abusers in this field and men sometimes will be compliant with their, their spouse. And so that's a secret we, we have to get over. And then the idea that they don't know what they're doing. No, I agree that the, the expert is the perfect word because they become seasoned experts in their field. So if we think about it as experts in the world, people who study biology, botany, you know, um, um, science, math, music, they become experts in their field through practice. And the same thing happens with child abusers. They become experts in their field through practice. They talk to people, they see how children react, they see how the parents react to them, they look at who believes them, they see what people believe, they fine-tune their stories, they fine-tune their way of manipulating, they fine-tune their way of getting out of something, they fine-tune their way of scaring people and in, in the children into doing these things. Um, and then there's a whole other secret side that we don't talk about enough, which is a child's physiological reactions that can happen where they are confused, it didn't happen with me, but I've had friends that have told me, and Oprah spoke about this as well, I enjoyed the experience because my mm. body reacted as it was supposed to. Mm. I was going through mental hell while I was going through physical pleasure. And so that is its own secret that some people don't want to admit, I went through this abuse, but if you're 12, 13, 14, and your body is changing and it's hormonal, and then somebody you know brings this in and you're like, well, I mean, it doesn't hurt, but mentally it's destroying you. And, you'll, and what I've seen is that people find out later, like I keep bringing up Oprah, but her story was the first to inspire me because she was so open at saying, I became promiscuous after mine. I started sleeping with uh, around with a lot of people. And that was the first time I had ever heard that abuse led to promiscuality. I always thought maybe people would run from, you know, the situation. So there's so many different ways this manifests. And like you said, they become experts. And so we should see them as such. We should look and say, no, this isn't something that they just didn't know what they were doing or they just made a mistake. A lot of these people, most of these people, are experts in their field, and their field is abusing children, pedophilia, pornography, whatever, you know, a sexual assault, whatever it is, that's their field. That's what they practice. 
And so um, when we start to look at it that way, you know, it puts a whole different scope on it because you're you're out there maybe trying to be the best podcaster, mother, um, and advocate you can while they're out there trying to be the best abuser, assault, um, and manipulator that they can. Absolutely. And one thing you said so much in your synopsis of your life, and I thank you because I know it's not easy. And one thing uh, you said a lot of things, but you touched upon bullying. You touched upon unworthy of love, living, suicidal ideation. You touched upon one thing that I want to bring out was the place you felt safe. You didn't feel safe around family because they reminded you, I'm thinking, they reminded you of the abuse because you're around it constantly. You're always thinking about it because I know in your heart you're thinking, I really want to tell my mom and dad, but you can't because your father, you're thinking he will kill them. So you harness this into yourself so your family doesn't seem safe. Then you're taken to the abuser's house and you're not safe. And then the only place you feel safe is at school and after school activities. Now, this is where I want to slide in me talking about prevention. Mm. We're so smart. We're so intuitive. We're so uh, open to new ideas and emotions. And we're so in tune to our emotions, rather. We're so in tune to our emotions that I'm thinking, and I had said, we need counseling much earlier. Because these counselors, if we could get them where you were saying you feel most safe, school, Mm -hmm. after school activities. Now, I wanted to be independent of school, though. Just counseling, I was hoping that the world will see that we need counseling early, early Mm -hmm. from toddler to teen, actually. Because abuse starts, if it's not sexual, then it's Mm -hmm. physical, mental, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, narcissistic parents. These children may, or us, when we were kids, can find some way to get a relief and perhaps get the courage to talk to uh, our parents about some things, like when it's not the parents, right? So in this case, in your case, you may have been able to, upon counseling, weed out all of that that was going on and be able to talk to your parents about it. But like you said, you run into this, how do we deal with what we've always said? I will kill them. So we're at a standstill in life where, in my opinion, and from what I've seen, and doc, a lot of psychologists I'm finding out are siding with me, is that abuse happens to everyone. It's not an anomaly. The type of abuse is different, but the trauma is usually exists at some point in people's lives, all people's lives. So not to interrupt you too crazy here, um, for me, I really, I was like, I got to get this out because as you were talking about secrets and, you know, people talking and the preventative and all of these things, one of the other areas that a lot of us deal with when you were speaking about silence is this guilt that some of us carry, a lot of us carry on our side as the abusers because we didn't speak up. We find out later, or even if we don't find out, we live with the, what if they're doing it to someone else? What if they're doing it to other people? 
or if we find out later they did it to someone else, we carry a whole new level of trauma, a whole new level of guilt, a whole new level of self-hate. So in my particular case, um, one, I want to just you know speak to the abuse that happened uh, at two at, at 18 months was not uh, technically a sexual ab abuse. So I just want to make that clear that it was a, an abuse and a trauma, uh, not a sexual abuse trauma, but it was a, it was a trauma. And then um, this, it was, and then, excuse me, it was under the umbrella of generational yeah. cultural abuses. It falls under that. So yes, I just exactly. Say abuse. Yes. And you yes, had said perfect. broken legs. So we know it was yeah. physical. And we also heard that you said that it uh, was accidental. Even you had dealt with it in your family. So, yes, yeah. you made it clear. But go ahead. And oh, OK. Mm -hmm. okay go ahead and continue, though. OK. For me, with the secret part and this guilt that we all carry, as I said, um, it actually came to a reality. I lived years with a couple of things happening. So the first summer that I was abused, I just got through it. I mean, I had the weirdest stuff, like the grooming and the stuff that you that we talk about, you, you, the experts in the field that you were just mentioning. I woke up one day and the woman that had like said her husband thought that he was sleepwalking, she said, I'm going to get you a perm. Um, and for obviously different for white women back in those days, that was that's a curly perm, not a straight perm. So for me, uh, I was like, oh, I'm getting a perm, you know, like I have curly hair anyway, but she wanted like this curly, curly hair. And I was like, oh, did you ask my, did you ask mama? She's like, yeah. So I was like, okay, come to find out his type was, was permed hair. He loved this particular rock star girl that had permed hair. So not only was like, what was yeah. I being groomed mentally? Are you serious? I am straight serious. I was taken to get my hair permed to look like the fantasy of what he had. At so 12 or 13 or? At 12, yeah, 12 years old. Not only did I have to live with that perm because it's kind of, it's a permanent, it's what it's called. It was permanent for a long period of time. But what that ended up doing to me psychologically is I straightened my hair from then on. Like I could not embrace my curly hair, which is beautiful. And I do now it was naturally curly. I loved it. It's, you know, I, I love it now, but I could not wear my hair curly. I would get out of the shower. And if I took too long to dry my hair and straighten it, I would have flashbacks. So not only are people out there abusing, but they're literally taking it to, you know, intense levels of steps to make children look like what they would like them to become. That was a little bit tangential. I added that in there, but I said that to say in my journey, the next six years from 12 to 18, not telling my parents, I would wake up, you know, sometimes, you know, sweating at night going, who else is he touching? Who else is he doing this to? Who else is he engaging? And then I get this call. I'm back visiting from college. I'm at my mom and daddy's house in Arkansas. I'd flown from Utah. And I get a call, or I didn't get a call. I walk in and my mama is saying to my daddy, you know, you know, so-and-so just uh, is uh, just went, he's, he's going to jail for uh, raping a 13 year old. And he didn't rape me. He had sexually assault, he sexually abused me, but he didn't rape me. And so when I heard that not only what, you know, was my worry realized, but it was realized to a higher level and being that it happened at the age of what I was, I knew exactly what that, that girl 
went through times 10 because she she went through a, a physical you know sexual assault instead of abuse not that you know it's either higher or less there's no hierarchy in the abuse here but i broke i i just remember crying my mom didn't know what was going on my daddy didn't know what was happening i just ran to my my old bedroom um that was my sister's at the time i laid on the bed i i just i couldn't get words out and my mom came in and this is how i ended up telling them talk about secrets and recovery is she comes in and she's like, baby, what's going on? Sweet Pea, talk to me. And I said, that happened to me. He didn't rape me, but that he did that to me and I'm bawling. And so then my mother has to take on that trauma because she obviously had all of this guilt come flooding in on her. Not only had she been sending me to the house, there's so many levels and layers to these things that happen. So my daddy then, my mama goes, tells my daddy, I fall asleep. My dad, who's my stepdad that adopted me, so we're very close now. We had had a bad relationship during my teens because of this. And we had reconciled while I, by the time I was 18, thank goodness. So when my daddy comes in, he comes in, and he, and he was not very affectionate growing up. Um, but I got the blessing of my daddy coming in and saying, I'm, you know, he's very Southern, kind of redneck kind of vibe, you know, um, People love him though. And he gave me a hug and he held me and he's not like that. And he said, I'm so sorry if I would have known, but here's where the story changes to exactly what I worried. He said, if I would have known, I would have killed him. And so it just, it brings all of this chaos into your mind, which is one, I knew that's probably what would have happened. And that is something I do believe my dad would have probably tried to do. We, you know, to be completely open here, we're very transparent today. I do believe if he would have found out, he would have tried to injure this man, and I would have possibly lost my father. So I think everything kind of happens in the timing it's supposed to. And then second, my daddy telling me that he believed me was so healing. My mama obviously did, but my daddy, who was the family member, telling me that he believed me was so important to me. And then to wrap this all together, this, the, the last part of this secret, which I'm sure there's many other parts, my mama came to me the second summer and she said, um, the ruse that they got me to go visit this family member was they would come visit us in Arkansas and hang out. And then they would say, we want Kim to come babysit our little kid, our, you know, our child for the summer. And she can hang out with us and go see her childhood best friend. So that's how they played it. My mama was like, do you wanna go? And the first summer, of course I said yes. I didn't know anything was gonna happen. The second summer, they come to me again, same thing. And I tell my mama, no, I don't wanna go. And she goes, okay, well, they said, if you didn't wanna go, then, then uh, maybe Nicole would wanna go. So I go, oh, no, never mind. I wanna go, I wanna go. To protect and so, Nicole. To protect my sister. Now. My sister and I, we had. Okay, we'll take a little break here and then we'll come back. Sorry about that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Take a little break, um, drink some water. And normally I would talk around it, but I'm just going to wait because I know you're nearing the end. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm actually good now. I just okay, needed to good. breathe. Yeah. Good. Sorry about that. Um, hey, you know what? Tears 
are your body's way of balancing itself. I was reading yes. that. And tears are a response, uh, part of the uh, vagus nerve. Yeah. So I, it's and, actually good for you. And I, I work in this, you know, so I, I know that this release is, is needed. And but when I it go happens further, to you, it's so different. Like I, I, I broke down the other day and I, yeah. I kept saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I get <laughs> over it and I haven't gone back to the space. <laughs> well, I just want to tell you, you know, thank you for that. Thank you for today because until this moment, I didn't realize how much I probably need to go and work on this angle. So this is actually a moment. The tears are also an indicator of things that you probably need to give more attention to. So for me, I will definitely, after this, I'm going to go and reflect on some things um, that I need to, because healing is so multidimensional. Uh, multidimensional. So yes. for me, give me one second on that. Yeah. Speaking about tears, I know for a fact that tears are healing mm -hmm. and the when I wrote my book I edited the book or they say crafted it 18 times right mm -hmm. the 15th time the first one through 14 I was crying for myself right and then as I went through it I got stronger and stronger and stronger and there was only one chapter that I would cry about, right? Mm -hmm. But the 14 times I would cry over what happened to me. On the 15th time, I cried for my father. And when mm -hmm. I cried for my father, I let it all go. Because there's something that's healing in tears and there's something that's healing in going back and reliving our experiences however hard they are. And that's why I advocate for writing the story. I couldn't journal. I don't even understand journaling because I was older when they started telling me to journal. And mm. it was like, where do I begin? Because I'm an oh. adult. I didn't start journaling when I was younger like you, right? I because Because you had some, uh, you knew what your your uh trauma involved as mm -hmm. you and remember you said you went through trauma as an adult right mm -hmm. so now i have childhood and adult trauma and unresolved father issues and unresolved now adult issues and then you have the uh normal uh routine of life making a living and you have your financial economic emotional mm -hmm. pains so where do you begin to journal as an adult? So that's why I didn't journal, but I ended up writing. And when I wrote the book, I wrote it all out from beginning to end. And that's why I thought of the podcast, because I had gone to 10 years of therapy, Kim, mm. and it had not done for me what writing my book did. And my yeah. brother and I were talking about it. And he said, that's a cleansing, Joyce. He said, that's but, what but, I refer to it as, a cleanse. But you just explained why people journal, and you did journal, by the way. Your writing, your story was journaling. You just didn't know that's what that was. So that's what journaling is. It's somebody sitting down and writing either their story or their feeling 
or sometimes they just write whatever is in their brain. So I teach journaling. I teach healing through journaling. And when people go, I don't know even how to do that. It's like, there's no right way. And so I developed a course around that because of people like yourself who were like, I didn't, I don't know how to start. And it's like, there's no one way. So I have 10 separate ways that people can look into and say, that one fits me. So you actually journaled, not realizing that you had journaled as you Wonderful. put those chapters. Yeah. As you put those chapters together and you wrote that. So going into your future, if you ever decide to jump into that, just sit down like you did your chapters, write it out, write what you feel, get it out. And if you want to burn it later, burn it. Um, if you want to keep it, keep it. And I, and that, that's something for another time, but I had a whole career with Martha Stewart where I taught art journaling, the ability to sit down and write things in um, writing and then paint on them and, and rip pages and burn the edges. And it was a, a therapeutic way. And I taught courses around that and they would put that in the Martha Stewart magazines and on the blogs. So yeah, there's a lot to journaling more than what most people think. And even when the therapist say, oh, I want you to go home and do a journal. I, I thought, let me go deeper. So I feel like I have a PhD in journaling, healing through journaling and also manifesting and also um, just people's creativity, how that comes to be. And the way the, I'll land my plane on that by saying, when we journal, it's bringing what's in our subconscious onto the paper. So when Let we write, mm -hmm. it takes that out and puts it there. So yeah, you journal. Right. Would you like to do a part two on journaling? I would love to. Okay, yeah. because I was so confused over what yeah, it was. I'd love to, to share a couple different things that I, I don't sell that course anymore, it's free. So I'd love to share some ways that people could understand maybe their way and how okay, to utilize it. So let's let, do that. Yes, let's do that on part two. Um, I, I'm so glad because I thought I would love to have her back. And so now Aww. I, look, now I, now I've done it. Yeah, you found <laughs> so it. You found the two, reason. Yes. And it's so important because I was thinking when the psychiatrist tells me, I think I am 47 and he tells me to journal, go home and journal. All I thought was feelings, right? So we'll get into that. That's a wonderful way because I really want to know. And then I can go more into how I, because of not knowing what journaling was, what I wrote about it also. And we can talk about that. So you were talking about your sister. Can you go ahead and uh, finish us up on that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for letting me have that little break. And I love that we were able to have our little talk about tears being healing. So for me, um, as you could tell uh, at the end there, I got a little emotional with me when my mother said, your sister can go. And I said, no, you know, I've had therapists in the past sort of say like, it reminds them of Katniss in the Hunger Games, who steps up for her sister kind of a connection. Um, when she's like, no, my sister's not going to go. I volunteer as tribute for those that have seen the Hunger Games or read it. So for me, I, um, I just saw it in a way of, I have already been through this. I know mentally that I can deal with what's going to happen. So why put my sister through it? Not knowing that, you know, she, I, I don't know if she had gone through her own issues with other people, but I just knew I didn't want her to go through it in under my watch. What that caused, though, the strangeness of mental and 
you know, connections that we have in life and trauma is that it caused me to be very resentful toward my sister. It's nothing she did. She could not have done anything to me. It was nothing that was her fault. But because I felt like she sometimes, like she unintentionally, obviously, would she would do things, say stuff, whatever, but she didn't know. So I'm holding things against her that she didn't even know about. I'm like, why isn't she being nicer to me? I, I did this thing for her. You know, I was like giving her all of this guilt, like when she didn't know, she couldn't have known what happened. And so it wasn't until years later that I, you know, like had a huge fight with her and yelled that like, I took this on for you. And it wasn't fair. I shouldn't have done that. But these are the longstanding um, ripple effects that we were talking about earlier. There's no way to know how one person's abuse is going to affect them with every area of their life, how it's going to manifest in relationships. So for me, the resentment showed up with my sister. It caused us not to be as close as we should be on my side, not her side. Um, it caused me to, you know, really disconnect from her in a lot of ways. I don't even think she knows to this day, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm getting this out and I don't know if she'll listen to this, but I don't think she even knew that I had that resentment. That wasn't her, her fault. Um, but I do think now having this opportunity to talk about it today, I will make it a priority to probably resolve that. So yeah, for me, that's another part of the secrets that we don't talk about to wrap this and close this loop is that some of us willingly step back into the fire because we don't want someone else to go through what we did. And in doing that, we go through a whole nother level of guilt and self-hate because we are struggling with, well, you went ahead and said yes. And then in my case, when I would fight with my sister and she would be rude or say something as teenagers do, I would go, why did I put myself through all that? You know, why didn't I just let her go? So there's so much that we carry around these um, secrets that we, we can't just call it, you know, an abuse. It's literally an attack on our future is the way I look at it. Once someone abuses you, they have attacked your future mentally, physically, financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationship, because you are never the same after that. The way you see the world, the way you carry yourself, the way what your future was going to be is going to be a different path now. You're going to have to zig and zag and back and two steps forward, one step back, one left, two step it. It is a complete different future. So from the time they abuse you, they have attacked your future and they have handicapped your future in certain ways as well. And so from that, I tell people um, that is why I, I do stand for harsher punishments in certain areas because of that life sentence that we're all carrying and all the nuances that go into this. So um, I really am, you know, I'm thankful that this came out this way because this shows in real time as I land the plane that a lot of us survivors, as we're telling our stories, we may have told it a million times, but something changes every single time that we realize another part of it and how it's affected us. And today I obviously realized oh man, this affected me with my, my sibling. So we're always growing, we're always learning, and we're always having to have grace with ourselves um, because it's a process for sure. Absolutely. Um, I was talking with a girl 
um, who's a licensed social worker. Her name is Belisha. And she said that you're emotionally stuck where you are and that's how it attacks your future. And I mm-hmm. love that. You have so many great coin phrases because that's what happens. It attacks your future and it handicaps your future. And I almost had a breakdown moment. She said, it's so triggering these conversations. And mm-hmm. I had a moment when you were talking about it that I actually was able to recuperate. But I went to the point of when my father, it was a domestic violence situation. It wasn't sexual assault on me. Domestic violence situation in chapter seven of my book. And uh, the one that I couldn't go back over and read. Once I cried for him, I was done with reading that chapter. I was cleansed Mm. of it, but I didn't want to go back through it because still, no matter how it is, when you put down the details of something, it's the only chapter I put down the details of. Uh, When you put down the details of something, you relive it and you go through that PTSD. You actually relive it as it actually happened when you go through the details of it. That experience handicapped me and I'm, I'm at a point where I've never gotten angry, but I think I'm almost there, Kim. Mm. I never got angry. I think I'm finally getting angry over it because Mm. your words just now has me understanding because they said you, in psychology, they said you don't, the last step to healing is anger. Mm -hmm. I've never been able to get angry because he was so angry. So you don't want anger in your life. But they yeah. said anger is for a purpose. This is psychologist, right? So when yeah. you said attack my future and handicap my future, I'm angry over that. I'm angry over that. And but I'm could... still at the point of it hurts because I'm dealing with it. Like you said, it's something that I've got to deal with. And we were talking about tears are a way of balancing your body out, right? So yeah. I'm angry that he kidnapped my future. I'm angry at him for stealing it I couldn't get married because I saw all relationships like what he gave my mom Mm -hmm. and I disliked the way that I loved my mom but I disliked the way she stayed I wanted her to leave him but she never left so my only my closest role model right not my only my closest role model is your parents' relationship, right? So if this relationship that I see on a daily basis, all I saw in relationships was similar to what you saw by not having relationships. Mine was the same thing. Well, I won't let anybody get close to me and I never will have any children because I don't want them to go through this. So he kidnapped my future by having me have these ideas in some Mm -hmm. form or fashion, you know what I mean? And I couldn't have relationships as a result. And I was thinking of this, and we're going to end the podcast here, and we're going to have you back. I also, I was on Rachel's uh, Twitter space a while back. Um, There's a a talk that I do called The Gift of Anger, and how you take it and you, you use it once you realize you get to that step, and, and like what it teaches you and what it does. So you're at that place now. So if I could offer that to you, because I know we're going to end today, but if I could offer that point to you at some point, once you go through that, um, if you ever want to talk about that, taking anger and understanding that it's a gift 
that you've been given, you're reframing it, right? Now you have this gift of anger that you can use that to propel and do other things. You can then fully heal. So that is true um, in psychology. I have my degree and like the gift of anger is actually a very real one because once you're able to release things through the anger process, um, you can obviously, you can heal more fully. So I think um, now that you're at that place, there's a lot that you'll you'll go through and you'll see and you'll be able to release some. I'm not happy for you, but this is a very important part for you. Um, and then what you were saying basically is you said you hadn't been able to get to the anger part. So if that refreshes your memory on your point, you said, I hadn't been able to get there, but through these conversations, it brings things up and anger is what um, is that last step of therapy. So you said, I hadn't been able to get there and so I don't know if that triggers you to remember what you were going to say about your dad, but um, you were kind of going the direction of, but I think I'm there, is what you said. I haven't been able to get to the anger part, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the gift of anger. Once I get through that, which is really hard for me because I see anger as violence. Mm-hmm. He was a very violent man. So that's what I deal with. The thing that I would say most, as the gift of anger is a talk that I give on stages, it's been a part of my book, I've had it, um, I've been interviewed on it. The reason that I considered it a gift of anger is as you spoke about before, it is one of the stages of, of therapy, of grieving, because remember, as, as a sexually abused child, we also grieve. We grieve the future we could have had. We grieve the stealing of our childhood. We grieve the person that we used to be that we lose. We grieve the loss of the light we had inside of us that now has to be reformed and rebirthed. And the gift of anger for me is something that I do cherish because as you said, it can be a hard emotion. But once we start to realize that anger is a necessary emotion in psychology, they consider it an essential emotion because anger is a release in itself as well. And so we love, not love, but we prefer to use sad, you know, um, upset, hurt. We, we use those emotions easily. But when we get to anger, a lot of us that are not angry people, we don't want to own that part because we don't want to be anything like the people that taught it to us. We don't want to be anything of the symbol of the people that embody that emotion. I really think that we don't talk enough about the gift of anger as it truly being a gift. As you said before, there's a psychological benefit. Um, You know, we talk about grief. And in this case, when you go through child abuse, one of the stages of grief is anger. And in in child abuse, we are grieving the, the child we were, the loss of the life that we had before, the loss of like the future we had for ourselves, the loss of our innocence. And so the anger is a part of that grieving process. And it is important to get to that place. A lot of people won't allow themselves to to have anger because they don't want to associate it with the person. They don't want to associate it with the person that taught it to them or what they think it as um, a negative emotion. Whereas the other emotions are all tied up in like, sadness or happiness or whatever, they're considered softer emotions, but anger is considered a hard emotion. And so I see with clients that I I work with, patients that I co-collaborate with other psychologists, 
on, they will not allow themselves to get angry. And so they push it down, they push it down. And that's another way that secrets, there's a phrase that I use a lot, which is we're only as sick as our secrets. I use that because in the world of chronic illness, a lot of people that have been abused, child abuse, um, sexual abuse, mental abuse, they develop chronic illnesses. The pain of everything goes to the body. They may be mentally extremely strong, but the body carries, um, it carries that, that memory. And there's a book even called The Body Takes Score. And it talks about the traumas that the body will actually take on. And so for me, I see the gift, I see the anger as a gift now. I see it as what's propelled me forward. And also I see it as a gift because once I got to anger, I was able to release and I was able to start moving from recovering from trauma to managing forward. And so that shift from I'm I'm through I'm going through treatment, I'm I'm having to recover into I'm recovered, I'm healing, I'm healed, but I have to now go into management and I will live my whole life in management because it's never fully cured. Like you said, a lot of people deal with PTSD. So those are things that we will have to live with. But once you get to that anger level, it is a, it, you should be able to see it eventually as a good sign of, you know what, I'm finally here. That means that I'm probably gonna be able to actually let go fully, completely of this piece of this. And so if you're dealing with that, if you're listening now, or if this is a part of your story, it's important to allow yourself to be angry when you get to the appropriate time, when it feels right, when you go, you know what, this feels like this is the right time. And I wanna just make this distinction as I close the loop here on this as well. The anger that we're talking about is the anger that you have for the experience not the anger that's created that you place on everyone else. I had to learn the difference. Two different scenarios. The anger that's created from the experience. A lot of us, we get abused. We, become, we can become angry at many people. We take the anger out in relationships, friendships, um, on ourselves. That is a process in itself. And you have to go through that and you have to understand that and learn what that's all about, where it comes from and then realize it's not okay to treat people poorly because of your abuse or to do things. It's okay to understand that it's kind of like the Maya Angelou reference. You know, you may not know better. Maybe your anger led you to do what I did, you know, take it out on my sister, take it out on my parents, take it out on myself. But once you know better, do better. So once you realize that you are having some reactions of anger due to your abuse, it's, it's then uh, your accountability, your responsibility to get help in the way that you can to seek recovery, to, to seek treatment so that you don't take that anger out on other people. Now, the other part, the other side that we welcome, that gift side is where we realize I'm allowing myself to be angry. I'm allowing myself to get angry with the person, with the experience. You know, you don't have to be angry at yourself only. It's not your choice. You didn't do anything. It's not your fault. But it is okay to be angry with the person that did it. It's okay with the people who saw it. It's okay to be angry with the people. It's okay to be angry at the people who saw it and the people who didn't talk about it. It's okay to be angry with the people who enabled it. It's an it's an okay thing to be angry with society that has let it go on. It's okay to be angry 
with people who don't think it's as bad. It's, and then to wrap, it's okay to be angry at just the entire experience and to be angry that you're having to mourn the loss of a completely different future, a completely different person um, than what you had intended. So for me, I'll end by saying, when I reached anger, that's when I realized my purpose. So the reason I call it the gift of anger is through the process of anger, you probably will realize what you're going to be able to pull as a purpose from your pain. You're gonna be able to realize how powerful you are that you were able to come through something and stand before people and say, this is what happened and this is where I'm at now. And lastly, that anger propels you forward each time it comes around because it may not just be one thing. And in my case, I got a friend request from my abuser. Can you, like, can, I can't even imagine if people can imagine that. I can't wrap my head around it. Yes, my abuser got out of jail and I was on Facebook living my life. He's a family member. In his mind, he paid his dues, paid his, did his time. And a lot of my family members accepted his friend request. That, that angered me, that enraged me. I, I mean, I, and I am okay to admit that. I became so angry with family members, with him, that he had the audacity to come into my sacred space of my world that I had built online and think that he could then, I guess, look at my online media. I blocked him, of course. I spoke to my mom. My mom was like, I didn't accept it. Um, but some other people in my family did, some cousins and aunts and uncles. Some people knew, some people didn't. But I was so angry. And so what that led to was that led to me saying, I'm now going to write my book. And the reason was, is I was so angry that this happened, so angry that these family members accepted his friend request. But then I had to say, wait a minute, some of them don't know. They don't know how bad it was for me. So until I tell the story, until I write the book, until I give it a face and a voice, they won't know what that pain's like. And then people who may be quiet and not telling their story, they may be dealing with anger right now, but they don't have an outlet. So the reason I have labeled it the gift of anger in all my talks and everything that I've done is because it led to a lot of the things that I call blessings now. And that's where I'll, I'll end that point. That's excellent. And I am honored once again to get your viewpoints. I am so proud of you for the work that you're doing, for our work together. I think today I finally have become proud of myself. <laughs> oh, man. Amazing. I'm proud anyway. of you as well. So now I got to take a minute. <laughs> Oh, man. And you'll understand this in a minute. Wow. So um, the gift of anger. The gift of anger, I understand the nuances of it. And I understand uh, how it could help you to go to different phases of your life, find your purpose. And I feel that I have found my purpose uh, in doing this. My purpose, like all of us, I feel, are to help each other. 
it's a simple thing. How we go about doing it is where we where we try to find our purpose, because society, we're all spiritually connected. Mm-hmm. If we recognize that we are all spiritually connected and we all share this DNA, all of us, mm-hmm. we the world would be a lot better. If I look at you as myself and not doing harm to myself, what would I want done to me, right? Yeah. And we carry that through, we'll be fine. In this world of materialism that is built off of building of nations, generational abuse has occurred as a result of the Roman Empire, if we go back to that period of time when they called it the cradle of civilization, the Roman and Greek empires. 30,000 years ago, they established nations through pillaging, rape, violence, material possessions, financial possessions, and it built arguably great nations as far Mm. as material things. Until this day, the things that they did to acquire that wealth has been Mm -hmm. passed down. So we have it today. And I have mentioned it before in methodologies, ideologies, and theologies on episode one. So I won't go into it. But all of that built that. So as far as figuring out my healing, I have done that. But healing is in different levels. So I'm at a different level now. Yeah. So the level I'm at now is, and this is where I have a direct conflict. And then I'll get you to see what those of us who grew up in domestic house, violent households here. And then we'll have this conversation about the gift of anger and journaling on the part two. But I'm going to end it with this, which makes it hard and which triggers me is when we grow up in these extremely violent households, it's hard to wrap our head around the gift of anger. It's like saying the gift of abuse. Yeah. To me, that's how I see it. So I have to listen to what you're going to say next time. And we're going to have to have the conversation for me to get past what my initial triggering responses i had that too just so you know yeah i had that too when my therapist told me that i should see it as a gift i had that too so we will definitely get into it i i co-sign that thought it is not a great feeling i don't know because i know at 18 months like you said pain you had a broken leg I don't mm-hmm. know if that was during a violent episode or an accident. You see, like you said, accident. So I'm assuming it, let's just leave that off the table because we don't want to bring that back up, like you said. But in any event, let's put that one episode to the side, though awful, trauma is trauma, right? Yeah. But go through from the first remembrance so you'll know how difficult this is. Yeah. At three and a half years old, I'm sitting outside a circle of my brothers and sisters who are talking about how to murder my father in case Mm. he would get out of hand with my mom. Yeah, we did that. Oh, God. So we'll leave it like that. So I'm saying for you to see how that would be what you said. You said the gift of anger is triggering for me. And those are the tears that are coming in because I'm trying to express that and had to take a moment to actually figure out what it is I'm trying to say. See? So yeah, I had a volatile upbringing as well. Um, I never talked about that during it. We focused on the sexual, but 
I'm sorry that I didn't think I didn't even think about what I said in that because I've had to process it with mine as well. Yeah, my we had okay. to watch my dad choke my mom. Uh, many times we had to fi figure out how we were going to similarly, you know, injure my dad. Um, yeah, a lot of that exact same thing in my home. So I can absolutely empathize with what you're thinking. You know, I just probably I shared 1% of the idea of gift of anger, but it is actually a very different um, when we go into it in a bigger way. I'll tell you how you have to get there. It's not pretty when we talk about it, because in order for you to consider it a gift, you have to recognize that it's not actually a gift at first. It's complete and utter destruction. So, yeah, I, okay. I do understand. So, look, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so when you yeah. said that I was being destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Emotionally, you know, I was yeah. being destructive. As you see, I was like. Like the, you know, the wicked witch of the north when they poured the water on it and she melted. Yes. <laughs> That's what was happening to my body. So I actually had to go to anger management um, uh, for a while because of how angry I had become after living in a domestic violence home. So I I may sound all put together on the podcast, but I still, <laughs> yes, um, I still deal with up. anger. You fooled me. Like, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I actually still deal with anger. I will call people, I, I will call people names and some stuff that if I get triggered uh, really badly. So like it's, you know, that's something I definitely would like to share. I want to share because I don't want people who may listen to a calm voice like mine and think, oh, wow, she's been able to handle hers. No, I've broken things. I've hurt people. I've hurt myself, not hurt myself physically, but I've, I've hurt. I've sabotaged myself. I've been angry. I've, I used to yell. There's many, many unbecoming things that uh, anger, you know, was. Um, so there's a reason that I got to the end of it being a, a gift later, but it comes so much later. It's not a, it's not a gift in the beginning at all or in the middle. It's very much later. So yeah, I will, I will craft that in a way that um, will help people understand. What I yes. Mean. And I'm going to put trigger warning on that for this time. And when we discuss it and, I am so grateful for you to be here. Thank I am you. so grateful because when I have experts here on the topics, there was a guy, I say it was a guy, it was actually a psychologist. And I just read one of his posts on Twitter. And he said, the best therapists, counselors, psychologists are the survivors of trauma. I think that you are showing us that today. I really feel your strength. I feel the work that you've gone through. Uh, and I'm happy that I was able to talk with you because I feel that I have learned a lot from you. And I know my audience has. So I thank you, Kim, for uh, coming. And I want to ask you, do you have any last words? Yes, just just uh, a few. Um, one, thank you so much for this platform and just the way that you welcomed me in today and your other guest as well. Um, listening back to the other um, episodes, it's just a, a beautiful way to start out a topic that isn't easy to navigate through. So one, I just want to tell you that I have so much admiration for you, one, deciding to do this amidst your own trauma 
and then um, turning your pain into purpose. So thanks for being a great example and inspiration in, in that way. And then um, lastly, you know, I, I just want to, I guess, co-sign on this idea that you have of moving forward. You know, we can't go backwards and hope that we can re, I guess, reframe the past for everybody and reteach people from the past. Going forward should be our focus for all those babies that are coming, I guess, 2023, all those people, all those little kids that are running around now, all those teenagers that are trying to find themselves right now, all those adult men and women that are going to find themselves in unbecoming situations. This conversation, these, this podcast, this woman is, is pioneering those conversations so that we can start that healing. And it doesn't matter where you are on your healing journey. It's not linear. It's not a straight line as we know. It looks more like a spaghetti noodle that's all like jumbled around. And so I just wanted to say, you know, it's people like you that really do give me hope that I don't know where we're going to be with this topic in 10 years, 20 years. But I know that people like you are giving us a place to continue our healing. And by healing ourselves, we are then able to, you know, pour from our cup into others and help them heal that themselves as well. So it's just that ripple effect that I'm grateful for that you've created today. And I'm excited to be a part of um, another part of your journey. And uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be here and um, sort of tiptoe through my, my topic at times, and then, you know, bulldoze through other areas of it. <laughs> and um, I really appreciate just your style. And uh, I'm excited to see what comes of this podcast as you go forward and with the book as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. I will end the show here. I'm sure that everybody has been elated to hear Kimberly speak as I have. I thank you. I want you to enjoy your evening. And I want to say to my audience, thank you for listening. I'm JJ, and this is We Are Not Our Secrets. Thank you.